Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Climate change and how it's going to impact our lives is a very critical issue of our time. We need to learn what we can do to modify this process or adapt to it. There will be changes that are a result of our behaviors and changes that are a result of natural Earth cycles. We also have to look at how this will impact our food supplies, our weather, and just the way our communities are set up. A lot of this is known as sustainability, and a lot of it has to do with learning how to make the cultural changes that our children will need to have as to understand the different type of relationship to Earth. Joining us today is Roderick King. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Florida Institute for Health Innovation, and he is also Associate Professor of Public Health at the University of Miami Medical School. Dr. King, thank you so much for being with us. Great. Thank you, Dr. Strauss. What is the mixture of the global warming as a result of human-induced processes, or how do we combine it with a natural Earth cycle? What are we dealing with here? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and, and a question that many folks have asked. Um, I, I think, you know, as far as we know from some of the research, that uh, it, there is a normal change that happens in the global Earth cycle. Uh, we naturally have uh, warming of the Earth and changing of temperatures. But I think what we're seeing is that the activities of humans and sort of the carbon footprints and other things that you often hear about are accelerating that process. So although you might see slight variations in, in water temperatures or maybe even slight variations in water levels, you're now seeing a much bigger exacerbation. And you're starting to see that manifest in terms of sea level rise, having storms in places that we haven't typically had storms and sort of even the hurricane patterns are starting to change. One of the other questions that's always attached, and I, we can touch on it now, but I'd like to get it to it a little bit more in detail later. There is also a concern that it is going to change the presentation or the challenge of many diseases, waterborne diseases, uh, neurological problems, psychiatric diseases. How aware or concerned are people about this manifestation of the change in our climate? Great, great question also. You know, it's funny you mention that because there was a survey recently done that asked about people's awareness between the link of climate change and health. What was fascinating is I think it was around 65% of folks realized that there probably was some link between health outcomes and the climate change. But when they were asked specifically about what were the, the health impacts that might be, whether it be around waterborne illnesses, asthma, things like that, very few public participants could actually comment on it. I think it was around 20 25%. And what it says is that I think we've made progress in showing that there is a link between probably the climate change and how it could impact the health of populations. But what we haven't gotten that far in, in terms of trying to articulate for the general public what some of those changes are. And, and they run the gamut of different things. As you mentioned, Dr. Strauss, they can involve certain types of insect carrying diseases. If you're talking about issues of standing water with sea level rise, where we might see things like increase in West Nile virus, Lyme disease, malaria, things like that. And then they could run to more chronic disease impact, things like impact on asthma and respiratory disease is due to poor air quality. There's now some work coming out in the literature to show that with high temperatures that we're starting to see more emergency room visits and probably mortality numbers due to the high temperatures. Some of that we saw from the heat waves in Chicago to heat waves in Paris, and we're seeing them in places potentially that we've never had those kinds of heat waves before. So I think the two answers to your question is one, there's a general sense that there is a link, I would say probably two-thirds of the population, but most people don't know what that link is. And it's very real in terms of some of the health impacts around either vector-borne diseases or chronic diseases, et cetera. Let's talk a little bit about 
sea level rising. And the reason that I want to focus on that is I saw something in the news yesterday, and I apologize, I do not remember which island in Polynesia they were talking about, but they were saying that the island is disappearing. It's going underwater. We live in southeast Florida. Uh, So much of our society is based on things along the coastline. Let's just talk about Florida. You can talk about anything, actually, in other places. But what what is expected in our part of the world as a result of sea level rising? Yeah, great question. You know, I think there are two sides of that that story for us here in South Florida. The longer-term story is that based on some modeling that we've done with our colleagues at FAU, we're probably going to see about a one-foot sea level rise in about 20 years, two feet in about 50 years, and probably by 2100, or should say 2100, close to about a three-foot water rise. What that means for us in South Florida is most of the very well-visited tourist areas along places like South Beach, Del Rey, et cetera, a lot of that is going to be very close to the water edge or underwater at most points. We've even done some modeling to show the pictures where places down in Monroe County in the Keys will actually be submerged, similar to what's happening with some of the Polynesian islands. So that's sort of the long-term picture. But the interesting thing is that from the short-term picture, I'm sure folks have seen or have been been aware of some of the changes we've seen with some of the king tides with the lunar cycles where we have these cyclical floodings that are happening in places in like Miami Beach and in Miami where with the rising tide, the tide tends to be a little higher than normal, the draining systems are not working and so there are major intersections in currently as this happens right now in South Florida where folks are basically locked in and not able to drive through certain streets. So for the short term, we're starting to see some of that now and now it is cyclical because we're not seeing a one foot level rise. But in the short term, I think what we're starting to try to let folks know is that we're starting to see evidence of what this would look like for us in South Florida. And that can have all kinds of impacts, from economic impacts, from the developmental impact for new housing. It could have health impacts in terms of people being able to get out of their homes if they need to go to the doctor or have to travel to the emergency room. All kinds of other things come into play. One of the things that I've always visualized, and I fully acknowledge that I'm being a little too simplistic as I put this into a a, a vision, but as the sea level rises, freshwater rivers are now going to have more seawater, saltwater going upstream. And I see (laughs) the fish in the floor and everything else beginning to change the whole coastal pattern. And if a river is slow and doesn't have a lot of heavy flow forcing it, there may actually be, I'm going to be simplistic again, a reverse flow of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could completely reverse, if not destroy, some of the current ecology that's happening environmentally for plant as well as animal life for fish life. Because you're right, with this rising sea level rise, it'll move the direction of water flow. Not only does it impact the ecology and the fish and the plant life, because there'll be plants now that aren't used to salt water that will be in salt water, it also impacts the human life. Because what people forget is that with salt water intrusion, it could impact our groundwater. And so now the question becomes, are homes able to get fresh groundwater as the seawater gets closer or intrudes into the freshwater aquifers? You know, the other other big concern, which we're starting to try to get more attention to this, is similarly, you have the issue of waste contamination because many homes have septic tanks. And so now you have salt water coming in that will sort of either disrupt or mess up the flow of wastewater management and will that contaminate some of the water supply system. So you're right. I mean, it's not only just from the context of the ecology and disrupting plant life and animal life that now you have freshwater, saltwater is coming in, but this impact also will impact us in our daily lives in terms of 
access to fresh water and wastewater contamination. Is there any sense of what we can do to slow down or reverse the process? Well, you know, I think there's, there's a couple of things. The first steps, which we started with earlier at Strauss, is just having people be aware. I, I think so many folks are just not aware of what the issue is, and both the long term as well as the short term, so that we can begin to have some conversations to say, what can we do as communities to see how this impacts us? So I think just the awareness to spark a call of action so that folks within different communities can start to discuss what might be mitigation strategies. Now, what's interesting from some of our research that we found is that the climate change whether you're talking about heat or sea level rise, impacts different communities differently. This may not be a case where we have one solo policy that improves all of sea level rise issues for South Florida because there are places, for example, in Palm Beach County that do not have the issue as much of sea level rise, whereas places in South Florida and Miami and Monroe County are very vulnerable to sea level rise. So this idea of both informing folks and then having folks locally convene to have conversations to say what this impact will have on our community, I think is the first step. And then that will hopefully open the door for opportunities to talk about how to mitigate it for your or that particular geographic area. Some of the lesser developed countries are saying that they should not be required to adhere to the same degree of self-restriction because they want to grow as an economy, and in order to grow as an economy, they need to burn more fossil fuels. This, this is quite a conundrum because what's necessary in an underdeveloped country could affect us. How do you, dealing with this on a day-by-day -day basis, deal with these political conundrums that you face? That is probably the million-dollar question, which, as you know, global, you know, climate change and global change is not just limited to just the United States. So how do we get our other partners to also see this as a call to action? Not, not unlike probably what we need to do in South Florida. But, you know, the, the conundrum there is that you, you do have to recognize that perhaps not every country might be able to do as much as some of our developing partners, whether it be U.S., the U.K., other folks in the European Union, et cetera, because there is a difference in terms of where people are and there's a difference in sophistication in terms of what people can actually do and still have viable economies for their countries. I, I think the negotiation or the balance is to try to meet some of these countries where they are. So they may not be able to have strict carbon imprint limitations that we may have in the United States, but can they have something that will move them closer to that needle? They may not be able to recycle or they may not be able to deal with carbon emissions the same way that we would do, say, in Germany, but can they do something to move closer to that? I think the danger we run into is if we ideally set just one goal and cognitively know that not everyone can be able to reach that goal, but really try to figure out the countries that can do it, they should be in a position to be able to invest in those types of interventions, to be able to meet those standards. And then the other countries, the developing countries that may be still trying to develop their technologies and develop their infrastructure, figure out what they can do from their standpoint. I think there is something still there that could be explored, which I, I haven't heard too much, which is how could developing countries help, the developed countries, excuse me, help support some of these newer countries that are trying to develop that are more dependent on fossil fuels. Is there a way to have transfer of knowledge of solar and hydroelectric dams from more developed countries like United States, Germany, UK, to some of these other countries to help them figure out how to have more renewable energies? And is there a way for that kind of brokering to occur that it's economically viable for both countries? So I haven't heard too much of that, but 
given the fact that I just came back from South America and this was part of the conversation there, and we're in a country that has huge water resources, extremely lush country that's right next to the Amazon and still depends for electricity by burning diesel oil for their country, yet has no hydroelectric dam and I don't believe any solar renewable sources in the entire country and they're right along the equator. So this raises this question of is there a way that other countries can help countries like that to have more renewable sources and make them less dependable on burning fossil fuels. Interesting that you're in South America because it brings up the question of deforestation. Having trees process the carbon dioxide is a natural process. I, I, right. I look at the statistics about deforestation and it makes me nervous. We're going to run out of trees. Oh, that may be a little bit <laughs> dramatic, but I think you should be concerned. Deforestation, as you know, is being driven by economic economic reasons, but uh, and I understand that that there is a need to generate wood for all kinds of other sources. But at the same time, I, I think you need to have a balance. We, we can't completely have the economic argument driving deforestation in huge parts of South America and the Amazon, and at the same time, wonder why we don't have enough trees to be able to reduce the carbon dioxide in the air. That's another one of those negotiations where some of these countries that are huge sources of forestation have to ask themselves, okay, what is the economic argument? Yes, we can sell more of our timber, but what will that have on the broader community overall? And, and that's, and I think that, you know, in the end, Dr. Strauss, that's sort of the deeper conversation is how do we as a world, how do we as individual companies, countries come to this idea of a shared accountability? Because if we're really going to move this needle around climate change, sea level rise, heat index, United States, you've probably seen some of the numbers, the United States can't do it alone. China can't do it alone. India can't do it alone. But it's this idea of can we as a global community really all accept this idea of a shared accountability and what can we each do from our particular perspective, whether it's burning less fossil fuels in a developing country, whether it's limiting the amount of deforestation in places in the Amazon or things like that. Do we need to decarbonize our economy? Do we need to find another mechanism to fuel our lives? Is, is that one of the sustainability challenges that you folks have working in this, in this area? Yeah, I mean, we as the Institute, we, we haven't been pushing on it, but I, I do agree that that is one of the ways we need to move forward is decarbonizing as, as we can. To me, this is going to be one of those things where every little bit helps. And if decarbonizing is something that we as a country can move toward, and we have a long history of talking about moving away from fossil fuels, so maybe this can be the catalyst to move us away from that, I think it's a great idea. We're at a point now, and just in terms of technology, I know at one point when they were pushing electric cars, et cetera, this is way before Tesla, there was issues around technology and being able to do that. I think now we have the capacity, both as a country and a global technology community, to be able to build electric cars, to build other types of vehicles that will decarbonize our communities. And in the end, what it does come down to is everyone sort of recognizing that they play a small part in what can they do to decarbonize or, as they say, limit the carbon footprint of your home, your family, your community, and your country. Getting down, just like you said a little bit ago, to how an individual can do this, parents need to wake up in the morning and look at their world and say, how do I sustain this for my children? Right. In some respects, massive. In other respects, very simple. I'm more of the optimist. I tend to see the glass half full. I've had a number of experiences, even with my two small children, to see that it starts from the individual family. And when you start to create that mindset that this generation, my children and my grandchildren, will have a very different mindset. As a, as a short anecdote, I, I remember growing up in the 60s, 
where the seatbelt was something that was kind of stuck between the seat and you really didn't see it unless you pulled it out with all the other trash and the stuff that was in the back seat. I pull out the driveway this morning with, with my two sons and they say, Dad, stop. You haven't put on your seatbelt yet. That's a generational shift. That's not something I heard from my parents. But my kids heard that because from when they were very small, we got this mindset of, okay, guys, put on your seatbelt before we leave the driveway. So I really do think it's a generational shift, and, and I'm hopeful that my, gener- my kids' generation and, and my grandkids' generation and beyond will be the ones that will be much more aware, much more sensitive about their carbon footprint, looking for that new electric vehicle versus buying the big SUV, things like that. Where could someone go for a reasonable, balanced overview of this? Would the, your website, your organization's website be a place to do that? Yeah, if folks are interested in learning more about what we're doing around climate change here in South Florida, absolutely. Going to www.flhealthinnovation.org, and you'll see some of the work that we did working with the Regional Climate Change Compact and looking at some of the health impact and how we're beginning to explore ways to try to work with communities to help them both raise the awareness and figure out what might be mitigation strategies. If there's additional interest in what's happening in a broader context, Our sister organization, the Public Health Institute in California, has been doing some great work, and their website is uh, www.phi.org, and they've been one of our partners in helping us to look at not just climate change, but climate change and health health inequities, and how climate change may impact the broader underserved populations. There's also one other group that folks are interested in is the U.S. Climate and Health Alliance, which is a network of folks that are doing this type of work around the country specifically looking at the intersection of climate and health. And we have partners like the EPA and other groups that are very actively involved. What always bothers me, especially now that we're in the midst of much political activity, is that there are so many politicians who are denying that this is a real problem. (laughs) Personally, I don't understand how that's possible, but it must also just frustrate you folks to no end. Yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging to deal with, but you know, Strauss, it's It's one of those things that the evidence will bear out, and I think folks will eventually start to come around. We've had multiple situations in public health where there's been folks that felt that seatbelt didn't save lives, folks that felt that tobacco didn't kill, folks that felt a lot of things. And, you know, I, I think with time and with additional research, it's clearly proven that this is occurring, and I think folks will eventually come along. But, you know, we're trying to do our best to be able to at least let folks know what the science and the issues are and the data of what's related to climate change and sea level rise. I had a teacher many years ago who said that if you appropriately worry about something now, you won't panic about it later. (laughs) I applaud you for your work, sea level rising and the visual of us losing our beaches and the sea coming into our backyards and all of those sorts of things. It's very disturbing to people, and I think they need to keep it in perspective. I hope they go to your website learn about what we can do to sustain our lives and keep ourselves viable as the the sea levels go up. We we have no choice past the point. Roger King is the chief executive officer of the Florida Institute for Health Innovation. He's been working in these areas for many years, I assume, and doing good work. And um, we'll get back to you when something comes up, when we can talk about a particular issue if something really hits the news. Thank you very, very much. Great. Thank you, Dr. Strauss. It was a pleasure.